Welcome in to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover joining you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida and from the Washington, D.C. metro area. I don't know which town specifically, but we have one of the voices of the Washington Nationals, Dave Jagler, joining us. And Dave, it's great to see you. Welcome to our show today. Roger, my pleasure. We'll keep my uh, location a secret. Security reasons. Nation's yes. capital, you understand. <laughs> Undisclosed location. Well, Dave, what was the season like for you um, calling games remotely? It's it's much different, uh, obviously, this year, calling games off TVs. Uh, how did it feel for you this year? Really hard. Um, and I, I think when 2020 ended, um, I date myself a little bit. I don't know if you remember the movie Office Space when they had the scene and they they went out in the field and they they beat the, the heck out of the copy <laughs> machines. I wanted to do that with our with our big monitor thinking that that was, that was the end of it. I'd never have to do this again. <laughs> Good thing we didn't uh, break the monitor. We're probably going to be doing the same thing, at least uh, to start in 2021. So quite a bit of an adjustment uh, when you've done it one way your, your entire life. Um, and, and a learning experience, kind of trial and error to see what would work. Now, I mean, luckily for, for Major League Baseball, we had the benefit of, of the best camera angles you could have possible. Um, but I mean, the thing, the thing that really took some getting used to was you're in essence calling the game a different way. I mean, when you were, as you guys have called games, when you're in person, your, your eyes, you focus on certain things. Maybe you zone in on the home plate area, the pitcher when he's about to pitch, and then you kind of widen your own field of, you're, you're in essence, your own television director. You're dictating what you see, what you look at. If there's a runner on base, maybe they're going to throw over, you focus on that. Then the ball's hit, you widen your field of vision. Uh, to see where the ball's going or to catch it, to figure out what, what fielder is going to be chasing the ball. And then if you want to see what the runners are doing, if the base coach is waving him in, where the relay man is setting up, you control what you look at. Well, when you're doing the game off a monitor, you have no control. Uh, you're basically at the mercy of, of what they're showing you. Now, we did have the benefit. We, we kind of like, a, like our Zoom feed, we had different boxes of, of things to look at. And I kind of relied on two things. The main um, television feed, which is what folks would see at home. That's what I used to call the pitch. Obviously the most important aspect of baseball play-by-play -play and uh, the, the way the play starts. And then generally when the ball was in play, I would look at what was called the all nine shot, which was kind of a high uh, camera angle behind home plate. And you could see basically the entirety of the field, all nine defenders. And so when the ball was in play, I relied on that, especially base hits, balls in the gap. That way I could kind of pick up uh, whether a runner might be going from first to third or, or what the defense was. And actually, you kind of had to look at that pre-pitch, to be honest with you, because there's so much shifting going on in Major League Baseball these days. You know, part of your setup is, well, is the third baseman on the, the left side or the right side of the diamond? Is the shortstop on the left side or the right side? So you, you could only tell that on the all-nine uh, camera angle. The problem with the all-nine is it's a set uh, camera and never changes. So once the ball is in play, it doesn't zoom in on maybe what you want. You're, you're still going to have that, uh, that wide-angle shot and maybe not uh, as close in as you want to see it. So uh, it, it led to some issues. The hardest thing, honestly, guys, is when a ball is hit, let's say it's hit 90 to 100 miles an hour and you're watching the, the feed off the television for the pitch, by the time the camera switches, the ball's hit and the camera switches, what's happened has already happened. Either it's a base hit, the fielder has fielded it, or maybe he's booted it. And so you kind of have to be a detective to figure out what happened. And for an example, I got burned one time. There was a, a ball up the middle, a rocket up the middle past the pitcher, and the ball happened to hit the second base bag. How often does a ball hit the second base bag? Not that often. Might see it once a season. Well, so initially we didn't see the ball hit the bag. You, you call the line drive up the middle, and then by the time the TV camera switches to the second baseman, he's kind of staggering off to the side in an awkward way. Like he, he kind of went left and ended up right. So I'm figuring he booted the ball, but he, you know, cause he, he it took a tricky hopper. He misplayed it. And that's kind of how I called it. I didn't know until on the replay that the ball had hit the second base bag and deflected over his wrong shoulder. So you, you kind of ended up botching the call. So it's, it's challenges like that, that, uh, you know, you didn't figure on and you just, you had to deal with, I'm a perfectionist. I want to get every call, right. It was kind of a, it was hard to do that uh, in, in the 2020 season. And when you, you look at, you know, diving deep into your preparation and, and looking away from the screen, I almost feel like, 
you know, take me inside the booth because I don't know what you have in turn. We'll get to your prep a little bit later, but mm -hmm. you can't look away from the screen too much. So if you want to dive deep into a story and you're looking for notes and you, if you're at the ballpark, you kind of have a feel of what's happening. You don't get that with remote broadcasts, right? You can't really look and look too long at your notes, I would assume. You know, you're absolutely right, Kyle, because, you know, obviously when you're at the, when you're at the field, you don't want to take your eye off the field for too long in case you're going to miss something, but it's doubly uh, that much more important when you're not there. And if you miss something off the monitor, then you're, you're really going to be behind the, behind the play. And the other challenge is, you know, just working with, with my broadcast partner, Charlie slows. I mean, generally we're both kind of facing the field. And so you can kind of, I mean, I always sit on the left side, I can turn a little bit to the right. If I'm watching him talk to maybe get a body language cue of when he's going to finish, or if I'm talking, he can do the same as to when I'm going to finish. So you don't really end up jumping on each other. We've worked together long enough. We, you kind of have a sense of, of when you can get your, your comments in if, if I'm not doing play by play or he'll do the same if I'm doing the play by play. But with the way our booth was set up, uh, we actually had our backs to each other um, because my, if I'm facing, if this is where, and we were in our Nationals Park booth. If I'm looking at the field like this, my monitor was to the left and he's facing Nationals Park. His monitor was to the right. So we had our backs to each other. So no, those kind of interpersonal cues where you, you want to look at your, your partner to see if he's done talking, you couldn't do that because our, our backs were to each other. And sometimes I got the sense he was turning over his shoulder and looking. I'm like, don't look at me. <laughs> look at the monitor. We, we, might, uh, we might miss something. So yeah, you, you didn't really want to take your eye off the game too long. And I know, you know, I, I brought show and tell for, for later on with the preparation, my Bob Carpenter scorebook. Normally I have it on the table in front of me. When I was facing the monitor, I would honestly just kind of fold it over and kind of keep, I kind of keep it on my lap because the, the table in front of me, my counter where I would normally write to keep score is now off to my right. So sometimes I would keep it off to the right, but sometimes I just keep my scorebook in my lap that way to keep my eye on the monitor to have no reason to ever turn away from, uh, from our only uh, bird's eye view to the game. And staying with that for just a second, talking about uh, looking out at the field, uh, we've heard some broadcasters on here before and others I've known talk about the adjustment they have to make going to Nationals Park due to how high the press box is and the view you have there. Obviously, that's your home ballpark, so you're used to it. But what was the adjustment like when you first went in there, being about as far away as you can be high above the field? Well, I mean, Roger, it's, it's, uh, it is far and away the highest. Pittsburgh's pretty high, but Nationals Park has it beat. Um, so for, for guys who come in and do a three-game series and then leave, that, those are the guys who have it rough. I mean, we've, I've seen every game there. So pretty much when the ball's in play, uh, it, it's easier to judge the trajectory of the fly ball than it was when we first started. So many guys, I think when they're there, they think every ball is going to go out of the ballpark. As soon as the ball is hit in the air – the perception is it's going to be a home run. Well, once you've seen uh, every ball hit there, you have a better idea. And in some ways, it, it's a little bit of an advantage. There are some ballparks where when you're lower and the, the sidewall stands come up, you're obscured uh, in certain outfield corners around the major leagues. You never have that problem at Nationals Park. You can see everything. And it gives you a pretty good idea when you have a good outfielder or a bad outfielder, because you can see the trajectory of the ball and how the defender's reacting. And so you can tell who the, the really good outfielders are. So those are a couple of advantages and disadvantages. I've gotten to the point where because I sit in the same seat every night. I've got a real good view of the uh, feel of the strike zone. And obviously with, with the MLB games, you have the MLB app and a couple of seconds after the pitch, they put up on the, on the game day app, the location of the pitch. I can tell if an umpire, in my opinion, misses a call by two or three inches because I know where the outside corner is or the inside corner from having seen every pitch in national. <laughs> Wait a second. He just gave that guy four inches off the corner or vice versa. Oh, that pitch was a strike and he didn't call it. And generally I'm right from 10 stories up and it's confirmed by game day. So uh, in that way, I've gotten used to it. The one, the one play that will always catch you and it always tends to happen if your if your mind or your focus wanders for a second. Hey, I'm I'm looking at an out of town score, or I'm looking up a stat, and my I kind of zone back in late on the pitch. It's the low line drive, and let's say especially if the ball is back to the pitcher, you're so high up sometimes you can't tell if it's a one hopper back to the pitcher or if it's a line drive that was caught in the air. So like once a season, you'll say, 
you know, ground ball to the pitcher. Oh, it, it's caught. <laughs> you, you, you get, you get caught uh, not knowing whether the ball is caught in the air. And so in a way you almost, if you come in there for a three game series and you're not used to it, you, you want to lay back. You want to say, you know, hit hard or a shot up the middle. Don't commit to whether it's a line drive or a ground ball uh, because you could get burned. You call it a ground ball. The guy catches it in the air. He's walking off the field for the third out. Then you've got to cover up for a mistake. Well, that's where you are now, the voice of the Washington Nationals, along with Charlie Slows on the radio. But for you, what was the spark? Why did you want to get into this industry? Wow. Uh, I mean, take me way back. That, you know, I, I always love everything about sports, all sports, watching them on TV, football, basketball, baseball, uh, playing sports, uh, grew up playing. And, you know, I think pretty early on when I was in, you know, middle school, you know, knew that I wanted to be in sports in some capacity. Uh, was, was smart enough to know that probably wasn't going to be as a player. So I, I took interest in announcers very young. I mean, I, I listened, um, you know, back in the day when, you know, pre MLB app, when you had the AM radio and you, you know, I lived uh, just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. So we had 1080 was the Red Sox affiliated. But if you turned up to 1090, you could get Orioles games and listen to John Miller call the Orioles. You could get up to 1100 and get the, the Cleveland Indians on 3WE. And if you search the dial, you could find Ernie Harwell and WJR doing Tigers games. So uh, I would dial surf and, and listen to different announcers. And um, fortunately, growing up as a, in New England, a Red Sox fan, the, the Red Sox had great announcers to, to listen to on radio. Um, it was Ken Coleman and Joe Castiglione. Joe's still there. Uh, television side, Ned Martin, later Sean McDonough. And then obviously on the national side, Vin Scully was the, the game of the week for, for me growing up uh, with Joe Garagiola. So that's, uh, you know, I, I certainly took an interest in, in announcers and um, from, a, from an early age, uh, I knew I wanted to do it. And when I played baseball in high school, I often tell the, the story. It's, it's always a funny, gets a laugh on a, on a speaking engagement. Well, how did your career start? Well, my baseball broadcasting career actually started in, uh, in high school, Windsor High School in Windsor, Connecticut. When I was playing in left field, uh, I was broadcasting the games that I was playing in uh, when I was out in the outfield. So that was always great until the ball was hit to me. You know, here's the three one swinging a fly ball. Got to go. Got to go make the catch. So that's uh, that's how the broadcast career started. Did anybody ever see you talking to yourself in the outfield at times? Oh, no. Oh, no, Dave. No, no. That's why you're in left. I couldn't do it if I, if I was on the infield. But out in left field, you're, you're all by yourself. No, no one knew. It was my secret. And transitioning now to college and, and Syracuse is kind of the, the destination for many broadcasters that want to take a big jump in this industry. What was the culture like at WAER at, at Newhouse? Who were some of the people that were at Syracuse at the time you were there? Well, I'm mean, very fortunate. Uh, when I was a freshman, uh, Ian Eagle was the one who critiqued my sports cast to get on the air. Uh, Ian just signed a new contract at CBS, so maybe he can buy me dinner and when we're allowed to travel again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he was obviously a mentor there. And then, you know, it, it was incredibly competitive. It, it was almost in some ways more competitive than the job market itself, just trying to get out in the air at Syracuse because everybody wanted to do it. And it was not easy. I mean, it was about a one-year process just to get on the air to do sportscasts. And then the, the gold standard, the, the plum assignment was to do play-by-play -play for the football team and the basketball team. There was no baseball team at, at Syracuse. So those were the, the two assignments you wanted. And in order to get cleared to go on the air for, for a basketball game or a football game, you had to go into the stands and do a, a practice tape, which if you're sitting in the student section, talking into a recorder, calling a game, it's not a great way to, to meet, meet girls. Let me assure you of that. Um, but it's, it's the step that it's the hazing that everybody had to go through. And you, you did your practice tape into your, uh, into your Morantz recorder. And then you'd, uh, over a course of a year, maybe a, a season, you, you get your tapes critiqued. And hopefully by the time you were a junior or a senior, maybe you got on the air to do football and, and basketball games. And uh, th that was a, an incredibly competitive time uh, to try to do that. One of the guys who I ended up doing games with, he was a year younger than me, has had a great career at ESPN. That's Dave Pash. Uh, when I was a senior, Dave was a junior. We did a bunch of games together. So uh, it was a, you know, th there have been some great eras in, in WAER and Syracuse University broadcasting. And, and the year I was there was, was pretty strong. Uh, when I was there, I interned for, for Mike Tarico when Tarico was a, a TV sports anchor in Syracuse. And right in the middle of my internship, he took a job at ESPN 
And uh, there he went. What did some of those early tapes, what were they like for you? What were some things you were trying to work on? I'm also interested too, what, what a young Dave Pash and a young Ian Eagle sound like in college. Mm-hmm. Did you, when you heard them, did you try to model after them? Did you, did you realize that, okay, these two, they're going to be stars eventually. I know everybody said that about Ian Eagle fairly early on. Oh yeah. I mean, you have to kind of consider the, 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 the class that I was in. I mean, I, when I was a freshman, Ian was a senior. So he, he was the guy you looked up to and it was pretty obvious that he was going places. I mean, you, you knew that he was, he was special. You know, I was a year older than Dave. So, so I kind of maybe more was a mentor to Dave coming along, but, and he actually was not in the new house. I mean, most of the guys who were in WAR are, our new house grads. He was not in the new house school, which was interesting, but you knew he had a lot of talent. So he, he definitely stood out as someone that I worked with. You know, I, I have, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm down in my basement and I think I have a crawl space back there. I have all my tapes from college. And one of these, one of these days I want to get out and, and listen to them. And, you know, at the time you, you thought you were good, but if you listen to it now, you're like, man, I, I, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I, I had a lot to work on. I, I think I kind of always had, had the voice, but it just, it took a while to develop style and, and comfort on the air. I think when you, when I listen back and I've listened back in the past to those tapes, it, it, it kind of everything sounded rushed or forced. It took, it takes a little while for any broadcaster to, to find that voice and that comfort level of just being on the air. And that's why, uh, you know, my advice to, to anyone who wants to get in the business is come up and, and to come up through the business is, you know, don't say no to anything, any chance you get to be on the air doing anything. And if it's sports, whether it's, whether it's field hockey or soccer or uh, lacrosse, anything you can do that's on the air. And it doesn't even have to be sports, whether it's doing a news broadcast or a weather broadcast, anything on the air, just the comfort level of being in front of a camera or in front of a microphone will, will be something that, uh, that you improve on. Um, after I, I did a ton of sports casts in my career and then later on did some other sports casts uh, for, for ESPN radio. And I remember I never used to write a script when I first started doing sportscasts, I would like write my name. I had to write down every word, but once you did it long enough, I could do a three minute sports update without a script in front of me. I would, I would just have kind of like a you know, wire copy and I'd ad lib or I'd create my own scoreboard and would not write anything down. And that's just from having the comfort level of doing it over and over again. And honestly, broadcasting baseball games, there is no script. So once you can talk off the cuff and, and fill that kind of time and tell stories. It makes everything else easier. Great college experience for you at Syracuse. Then what were some of the steps you took out of college as you started making your climb through the ranks? Well, it, it was kind of a, a you know, kind of a step-by-step climb. Um, my first job was in Morgantown, West Virginia. So small market radio, worked a ton of hours, made no money, uh, did everything got to do some play-by-play for high school sports, but Syracuse had a little bit of a pipeline uh, down to, to Metro News Radio and WAJR in Morgantown where the the affiliates there. And I think Pash followed me there, I think the next year. He, he went there and a couple other Syracuse guys had gone there in front of me. I was there for about a year and then ended up going to, to Charlotte where I spent seven years. Uh, Charlotte, I did everything from talk shows to sports updates. And that's where I really kind of spread my wings a little bit play by play. Honestly, guys, basketball was kind of where I had the most opportunity and did the the college team there, uh, North Carolina, Charlotte. Uh, they were an NCAA tournament team a bunch of years there and had a great experience calling their games. I had a handful of opportunities to do baseball there with the Charlotte Knights AAA team, but it was never a full-time thing. Uh, there were a couple years where I was the number two guy for Charlotte early in my time there, but I didn't travel. It was home games only, middle three innings. And then my last year in Charlotte, uh, the, the announcer who's still there, Matt Swearad, is still the voice of the Charlotte Knights. Uh, he missed a handful of games, and I was at the flagship radio station and filled in on those games. I hadn't done baseball in about four or five years. Well, that that opportunity in 2001 to do the Knights turned out to be the uh, the demo that got me the Pawtucket Red Sox job in 2005. It would have been real hard to get a job in 05 with a tape from 1996, which was the last year I kind of did, um, you know, any sort of significant baseball. Again, I had focused mostly on basketball. So after 2001, I left Charlotte and went up to Boston, again, kind of chasing the basketball dream. They were launching a new all sports station there to compete with the, uh, the behemoth at the time, WEI. 
1510 The Zone. And the program director from Charlotte had moved up to Boston, brought me there. And the hook was they were the Celtics flagship station. So when the the play-by-play guy missed, uh, I was the Celtics fill-in guy. And so that led to, you know, three or four games a year over a handful of years, but was not really scratching that play-by-play itch that I wanted. Um, And as many startup stations uh, go through, it was kind of evident that the station was not going to make it. Uh, The ratings weren't good. And so in 2005, the Pawtucket Red Sox job happened to be open and I interviewed for it and was uh, fortunate enough to, to get it. So that kind of that's how I was going. I was going on the basketball path and kind of took a late detour uh, into baseball to join the Paw Sox. So I, I'm, I'm thankful that I had that opportunity with the Knights in 2001 that kind of gave me that fresh, you know, semi-fresh baseball demo uh, to get the job with Pawtucket in 2005. And then the offseason after the 05 season, like every minor league announcer, you're, you're sending your stuff off to all the major league teams. That winter, is there were there were almost more openings that winter than the ensuing 10 years combined. Um, and I had several interviews, interviewed with Oakland, interviewed with Houston, and got hired by the Nationals and was called by the Phillies after I accepted the Nationals. I mean, there were so many openings and there was a lot happening. And fortunately, uh, the Nationals uh, extended me an offer and I joined them in the 06 season. And 15 seasons later, I'm talking to you. Here we are. Well, again, great basketball experience for you, not only in college, but also getting to fill in for the Celtics. And for you, just what do you like about basketball on the radio? What was always most important to you when you were calling a play-by-play assignment on the radio for basketball? You know, I, I enjoyed uh, simply kind of the the atmosphere of the the college game and, um, you know, the the band and the student section and the emotion of it and kind of how I mean, the school that I was with, Charlotte, they're always kind of a perennial bubble team, and every game just had uh, so much importance to it. You know, the baseball game, if you win, if you lose, you play tomorrow, and then you win or you lose, you play the next day. And kind of that's the same way in the NBA. But in college, you know, the 30-game season, if you're a bubble team, I mean, a game in December could be the game that gets you in or out of the tournament. So every game kind of had that magnitude to it. I just enjoyed the atmosphere. It was a, a really good conference. And you know, I just I enjoyed the the pace of the game and the energy of being in the different arenas uh, that I got to visit around the country. So, I, you know, honestly, I was really pushing hard to to get into basketball in in a full time capacity, which obviously meant the NBA. But uh, the the cards didn't fall that way. And you know, baseball is a totally different style of broadcasting. Basketball, the the ball's constantly in motion. There's not a whole lot of time for the analyst to to get uh, his words in. I mean, generally, that's if the ball's out of bounds or you know, free throw attempts, or maybe a quick comment, uh, you know, after a made basket, but uh, it's, it's a, a much more high energy level of broadcasting. Baseball's more relaxed and that's the, it's the storytelling. It's being conversational. Then when the ball's in play, that's when the basketball skills come into play. When you, when you're describing that double in the gap and there's a, and things are going hundred miles an hour, can you describe that accurately? And uh, you know, with poise so that your listeners know what's going on. And we mentioned the, the culture at, AER, but going to Paul Tuckett, which has seemed to be an assembly line of major league announcers. Dave, I don't know if you have the, the number of how many are in the league now. Is it seven or so that have been well, through? At one, one time, it was, not, it was nine teams had an, an ex Pawtucket announcer. I'd, I'd have to count it up to see if that's still the case. And th- there's really one reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's they, they hire their broadcasters based on broadcasting. Many teams hire their broadcasters based on what you can sell. Um, Don Orsillo and, and I probably fight for the worst, uh, the title of worst salesperson in the history of minor league baseball. In nine, I, I worked for the Paw Sox for about a year and I sold one ad. So I, I was the worst salesperson they've ever had. I, I claim, you know, Don claims that he is, but I think I was the worst, but they didn't care. They didn't want me to sell. They wanted me to announce their games and get to the big leagues. And it's funny you know, having, you know, working there, it's, it's interesting how they, they chose their talent. They, they did an interesting thing. They would, let's say, you know, all right, it's word goes out, you know, Dave's getting the the nationals job, the the word filters through the industry and, you know, boom, back then it was, everybody's FedExing their, their CDs or their cassette tapes to the, to a McCoy stadium in Pawtucket. And so they get whatever 50 to a hundred resumes and, 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 and demos. And so the, the PR person would, would kind of listen to him and he'd basically, you know, group them and they would, they would call the entire front office in either late in the day, or maybe they might even stay 
after work one day and, and order some pizza and they'd have the entire front office gather and they would play the, you know, a little snippet of everyone's, um, you know, their CD or their tape and they would vote. It was basically like their focus group. And so it was almost like a, a March madness. They, they, you know, have a, you know, group A, group B, and they put like three, right, which of the three do you like best? And they'd vote. Which of these three do you like best? And they would, they'd, they'd winnow it down to the final four or five. And those would be the, the finalists. And that, that's when they'd call references and, and do interviews and the like. So they basically, and these, these were, you know, baseball fans who worked in baseball. So they knew what a good announcer sounded like, but it was, a, it was kind of having their own focus group. And I never heard of any other organization doing that before. Normally it's kind of like one or two guys. Well, and, and that person, whatever they like, that's going to be the direction they go as far as finding an announcer. Well, this was kind of a group effort. And then they, they'd winnow the candidates down to the final couple and then go through the interview process. So it was really an interesting way they did it. And it worked for them because it seems like every time they, you know, they pulled Dave Fleming out of, out of a ball in California. And uh, you know, he's obviously a, a major league superstar. So they, they were, they were pretty darn good as, as to the announcers that they hired. Most of them moved on to the major leagues. And now getting to the nationals and, and working with Charlie all these years, how have you built up that chemistry? Was that one of those things that happened right away or did it come over time? Just because you're with each other every day, if you don't like each other and you work in the same radio booth and you're, you know, calling 162 games, six months, it's just not going to be fun. And, you know, I get the impression you guys get along. You sound great on the radio. How long did it take that chemistry to build between you two? You know, we had it honestly in the first spring training. I, I think it, it happened right away. We, when I first got hired, we had uh, a winter caravan event where I came in and, and he came in and they kind of introduced me. He was there for the first year I joined for the second year of the nationals in 06. And so we got to kind of meet each other and, and know each other a little bit on that trip. But then when we hit, when we got to the air, I, I think it, it hit off right away. And we, we knew, I think initially that the nationals were not going to be a good team. And so kind of just calling the game would be a little boring. So we, we kind of took it upon ourselves to, to try to bring our personality into the broadcast and make it a conversation that our listeners are eavesdropping into, uh, as opposed to just, hey, I'm only going to be talking about the game. Now, if the game is good, then the game carries the broadcast. But if the team's getting its brains beat in, that's when, uh, that's when we're going to have to take this in another direction, have some fun, let your personality come out, have a little bit of back and forth. And so I think we, we took that on uh, very early on, and that was important because the early years were very lean. Uh, the Nationals did not have a winning season. I think my first six years there and a couple years, they lost over 100 games. So if, if you're just doing those games, you know, kind of as is, it's not going to be the most entertaining listen. So uh, just because the game is bad or the team is bad doesn't mean you have to be. You've got to rise above that. And uh, we've been fortunate now since the 2012 season They've gone into every year thinking that they're going to win. Now, it hasn't always worked that way. And sometimes those years have been tough. The years where you're, you're expected to be good and for whatever reason you're not, uh, that those years can be a challenge. Uh, but we've been really spoiled recently by the success that they've had. And you talk about the chemistry. Um, one of my friends in the business one time told me a pretty good expression. He said, it's a small booth and a long season. So if you're not getting along, those words really matter. So especially on, on radio and the way we look at it, it's important to have that chemistry in the back and forth. Some teams, and, and if you listen to old radio broadcasts, it's kind of like one guy does his innings, the other guy sits out, then they switch. You don't hear from the other guy. I mean, to me, uh, the way I, I like to do it is that you hear from both of us, um, whether it's analyzing the game or, or going off on some tangent. If there's if, if someone's telling a story and that's interesting, well, if the, the other broadcaster reacts to that, then maybe you can kind of continue that discussion in, in another direction. Well, let's you brag on Charlie for a second, your radio partner. What does he do well? You've gotten to be right by his side for a lot of great moments in his career. Yeah, he's, I mean, he and I, I think, you know, both do an incredible amount of preparation. He is, he is always ultra prepared. And so that's a very important thing that I look at. But the one thing that, that Charlie has done uh, very well is he, he rises to the occasion for the big call. He, he can punctuate a big call with the, the proper emotion that the moment warrants. And so 
Uh, you know, some of his calls, whether they're the final outs of no hitters or Scherzer's 20th strikeout or a World Series winning call, uh, you know, those are his stamps. Uh, the Jason, you know, for a long time, it was the Jason Worth home run in 2012. It was a walk off homer in game four of a division series to force a game five. That was kind of his signature call. Uh, now his is the, the final out of the, the World Series two years ago. So he has the, the ability to rise to the moment and nail a big call. And then your broadcast as well. I just love turning on your broadcast because of the style that you and Charlie have, but also just the sound you all have. And I know that's in large part due to your engineer, the jack of all things, who just gets such great um, ambient sound, all the natural sound, the back crack just sounds so solid. Why is that? Well, I mean, he, he is the best. And it's something that the, the true listener, a radio aficionado can tell the difference. And, and to me, he makes all the difference. There are a lot of teams and most National League teams travel their own engineer, but I think more American League teams don't. So if you, you know, if you have an engineer who doesn't travel, you, you hire, you get to a city, you hire an engineer, he sets up the equipment and he goes off and, you know, drinks a Coke or reads, you know, pokes on the internet during the game. And if anything goes wrong, he'll fix it. And then the game ends and he breaks down the equipment. Well, Jack uh, sits in our booth and he, he watches every pitch. And there are, in the major league ballparks, effects mics down around either side of home plate. And that's where you can get the sound of the, the on-deck hitters, you know, knocking his, his bat weight off the bat. Or you can hear, if it's really quiet, like it was in 2020, you can hear his, his feet uh, if he's walking around the on-deck circle, you hear the stomp, stomp of the spikes in the dirt. But then where you really, you get it is, is Jack rides the level of when the pitch is delivered, he'll goose the, those microphones ever so slightly. So you hear the, the pop of the mitt or the, the whoosh of the pitch or the crack of the bat. And he is really able to ride those levels. He's, he's mastered it uh, with every pitch. And, you know, 99 out of every 100 he'll nail and then he'll miss one and I'll turn over my shoulder. I'm like, what are you asleep? Because he sets such a high bar. If he misses one, it, it always stands out to me. And so we get incredible bat cracks. And then what he's really good at is when something amazing happens, he, he'll pull the crowd down just enough so that it doesn't drown out Charlie or I trying to make the call. And he's just, I mean, he's incredible with, with what he's done. And, you know, Jack's getting older and I do not want him to retire because <laughs> he, it's going to be really hard for someone to, to come in and he, you know, he honestly becomes a character in the broadcast. I mean, we've been together for, for 15 years and he and Charlie for 16. So we, we talk about Jack, we make fun of Jack. He can't say anything. That's the beauty of it. Uh, so he, he really, he makes the broadcast and, you know, because he's so good, it's given us, we, we have our, uh, we have our curse reel, our guy back in the studio, because occasionally you pick up words or arguments that you shouldn't hear. And it, it's always Murphy's Law. It's when you're taking a breath. <gasps> That's when the guy, you know, drops the, the, the curse word after popping up or whatever. Uh, so we, we have a few of those over the years. But, I mean, he, he, is, he is incredible. And it's a real different sound to our broadcast that you don't hear on, on others. And take me now through that 2019 title run. I feel like you owe Howie Kendrick a lot of money for what he did. You know, you, you were on the he mic did. for those two big calls, the grand slam, the homer down the line. First of all, how much is your heart beating during those moments and trying to one, get the information out there, describe the play. And you're covering this team all year. So you have to be, your heart has to be beating. You have to be, you're trying not to scream. You want to stay so you can, you can stay within the moment, give people the moment. How did you do it? I mean, those are two incredible moments. Yeah, no, I mean, Howie made he made my career. Thank you, Howie. I think I I, I saw him on the bus after the first, you know, in, in Dodger the one he hit at Dodger Stadium. His family was there. I happened to to ride the bus back to the hotel with him, and his wife and kids were there. And I I pretty much I, I thanked him when when I got on the bus, and he hadn't heard the call yet, and someone had already put, posted it to you know to social media, and so his wife was listening to it. So that. That was a pretty special moment, but that that call in particular is my favorite one because, having been with the Nationals organization, we obviously the team had been a perennial postseason team, but the the narrative was they couldn't get out of the, the division series. Four years they had won the division, and four times they had home, had home field advantage, and four times they had lost, and three of those times they had lost Game Five at home. Well, this time they win the wild card game. They're the underdog. They're playing the the mighty Dodgers. So they're on the road. They have nothing to lose. And they, they have a great comeback to send the game to extra innings. 
and you know how he comes up with the bases loaded against Joe Kelly. And the 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 great part about it was, you know, there there were no outs at the time. So when Howie hits the ball, I gave it kind of a big buildup because once he hit the ball, either you know, the worst case scenario is it's a sack fly and it's your your go ahead run. So there was no reason to kind of hold back. And so uh, as the ball is in the air, you think, okay, could be a sack fly. Well, maybe it could be a double off the wall. And then I, I picked up Bellinger and started describing him. And then you kind of get to that point where you see where Bellinger is and where the ball is, and you realize it's going to be a home run. And that's when you you rise to the crescendo. Now you, you talk about covering the team and, and your heart rate rate. It's much easier in those high pressure postseason games doing the play by play than sitting next to the guy doing the play by play. Because when you're the analyst, you almost feel like you're you know you're not you're not working. You you have no control when you're the play by play guy. You control what you say and you're you're focused on that. I always get far more nervous when Charlie's doing the play-by-play than when I am, because I'm focused so much on doing my job and I'm, I'm in the flow of calling the game. So as soon as the ball leaves the, the yard, you know, I, I give it the big call and, and the, the score and what it means. And immediately I'm like, all right, I've got to pick up what's happening. And so I, I zone down on the Nationals dugout and I see the, the scrum of, of celebration. I, I talk about that. And then I try to pick up Howie coming around third and describe him touching the plate and so you're not really thinking about what it means that, hey, I'm going to have to go to St. Louis and call the NLCS. You're just trying to describe what you see. And then at the end of it, it kind of, well, how am I going to put a bow on this? And it was kind of like trying to think of something that would mean something to Nationals fans. It's like we've been sitting here watching this team lose in these moments after moments. So I came up with, like, do you believe it? And that was the way I ended the call. And so I was really proud of, of how that one uh, came out to capture that moment. The one that he hit in Houston off the foul pole, now that's in the seventh inning, so it's not it's not the game-winning home run. You kind of knew the grand slam to go up by four in the 10th was going to be the game-winning home run. The beauty of that call, and I, I the best part about it is, the worst, as, as you guys have called games, the worst thing you can do is call a home run when it's not or call not a home run when it is a home run. So the ball that Howie hit down the right field line, there are, there are a couple of issues. Number one, is it fair or is it foul? Number number two, is it going to be you know high enough or not? And number three, if you recall that right field corner in Houston, the fans are right there. And I think it was the year before that there was a controversial play where a fan reached over the wall and, and touched the ball, and there was question whether it was a home run or not. So a lot can happen on that kind of call that makes it hard for an announcer to know right away if it's a home run. I mean, sometimes you're looking down at the umpire saying, please give me a call because I don't know what happened. And so as the as that ball's slicing down the right field line, I realize, oh my, you know, Springer's not going to catch this. Okay, this has got a chance to go. Is it going to be fair or foul? Boink, it hits the foul pole. Prayers answered. There's no, there's no doubt. I didn't have to hesitate. I could just you know describe uh, what happened. And so kind of to put, to put a bow on it, um, I, I dropped in a, a do you believe it part two, because, you know, Howie kind of had no, had been no factor in the world series. And I said something about, you know, he had, uh, earlier in the, when the at-bat started, I said, you know, Howie's looking for his signature moment in the world series because he hadn't had one yet. He had been the MVP in the LCS. So I, I brought it around to that. I dropped in another, do you believe it to kind of tie it into the LA. And uh, fortunately it turned out to be the winning home run because the nationals never surrendered the lead. We've talked a lot about the technical aspects of play-by-play, especially in big moments and how to control your voice. But how about the the routine, you know, the the ground ball to shortstop? How much do you like to get into different descriptors? We've had differing opinions as to what is too much. You know, some people tend to go over the top, some people not enough. Where do you stand on just the routine plays of how much description that you want to give a radio audience? Uh, To me, as much as possible. Now, I, I, you know, I, I like to uh, talk about the, you know, what the defender does to field the ball. Like if it's a ground ball to short, is it right at him? Is it a couple of steps to his left? Is it a step to his right? Does he backhand the ball? Is it a, is it a line drive throw or is it a looping throw? Is he, is the runner out by a step? Is it a, is he out by a step and a half? They're, they're, to me, as a radio play-by-play guy, uh, the more description, the better. 
So that that's kind of the philosophy I have. Um, you know, to me, you're you're missing something if it's there's a ground ball to short, throw to first, and he's out. That leaves a lot of room for interpretation for the listener. Was it a hard ground ball? Was it a dribbler? Did the did the fielder charge it? Did he have to back up on it? Um, you know, again, was the was the runner going hard down the line? Was it a close play? Did the first baseman have to reach up? Did he have to scoop it out of the dirt? Uh, so to me, uh, there, there's so much that uh, that that can be done with with even the routine plays. And honestly, one of the things, guys, that that's changed in the last couple of years about my job, and uh, I've it's it's hard for me to to try not to sound like the grumpy old guy. But one thing I spend much, so much time talking about now is pre-positioning of the defensive team, and it's I find you know. I always used to say, you know, it used to be so uncommon. Oh, wow. They're, they're in a shift. You know, the second, you know, the second baseman's out in shallow, right. The shortstop's in the right of second, the third. And now I feel like I'm doing that nine times an inning. It's almost like, you you know, when, when two infielders are on the, on each side, that's unusual. So there's, there's so much, uh, I, I feel that I need to get in, uh, because, you know, the, the listener can't see that. I mean, just because it's a left-handed batter doesn't mean they're automatically shifting and they don't, they might change. I mean, you see in the major leagues, they'll change count to count. You know, if it's two and two, uh, or if it's, you know, one and oh, they might have the third baseman shallow to guard against the bunt. And then when it gets to two and two, the third baseman goes to the other side and the shortstop comes back. It's, it's almost like you're calling uh, wide receivers in motion half the time. So I, I feel like that's something, an adjustment I've had to make. And uh, it, it's something that I feel is important because if you don't talk about it before it happens, like if you just ignore the fact that there's a shift on and there's a ground ball to the right side and the shortstop fields it, well, what's the shortstop doing over there? So it's you 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 have to set the stage before it happens. And how do you try to balance all that description with making sure you have the right pace? Because I'm with you. I like all the descriptors as there as much as possible, but I feel like I rush a lot when I am trying to think about getting all these different words in and trying to make sure that it sounds as best as it can. But how do you try to manage your pace on something like that? Well, I mean, the, the one thing on, on radio, again, it, it doesn't happen until you say it happens. So you you can lay back on it a little bit. The one thing I'm, I'm always conscious of, and, and when when guys send me, uh, when, when minor league announcers send me stuff to critique, one thing that I, I always listen for and I notice a lot is how much do you let the broadcast breathe? And that's a fine line, uh, especially guys who, who work by themselves. One thing when you, you know, and I, I went through it, when you come up in radio and you learn radio, dead air is bad when you're doing studio radio. When you're doing a sports cast or you're doing a talk, you know, dead air is bad. That means like when something's wrong. The station's gone off the air. Dead air is bad. Well, in, in baseball, when you're on the air for three hours a night, some dead air is good. You want to, you don't want to just be talking and talking and talking and talking and talking for the entirety of the three hours, because what you say loses impact in, in all the things that you're saying. So, you know, there's, there's a, there is a fine line again, between having to, to describe all the, the defensive things and trying to get some biographical information on the hitter and then laying out so you can describe the pitch. You know, I, I'm always conscious of that with myself. Am I letting the broadcast breathe or am I inundating the listener with information? So that's a little bit different than what you're asking me, but uh, I think it's an important point to make that, you know, again, you might have 10 bullet points on a certain player, but if you give 10 bullet points on a player, how many of those are the listeners going to remember five minutes from now? But if you give one really cool nugget, that's something that, that might resonate for a while. So it's, it's all about picking your spots. Now, when the ball's in play, again, it's, it's just a feel of what you have time for. When, when, the ball, when the ball's in the gap and there's a lot happening, you might not be able to describe everything, every single thing that happens as it's happening. And I, I'll think back of the, the call that ended game four of the World Series this year when Arosa Reina fell down and Muncie got the relay throw and threw it away. Now, that was an impossible play to call if you were calling it off monitor because you didn't see it. But if you were calling that game in person, well, that's a lot to describe as it's happening. You know, you do have the ability on radio to kind of just, you know, give the basics and then do a quick recap of what you missed. Uh, so, so I, I mean, that's something you, if you feel you're, you're rushing, you know, if you, even if you're calling a basic ground ball to short, after the play, you can, you know, you can kind of circle back, you know, Hey, he really did. He had to extend a couple of steps to his left and got a lot on the throw. You can almost analyze. It almost makes you like an analyst, analyze what you saw. Even if you can't get it all in, 
in the in the duration of the play. So there, there are ways to to go around it uh, so that you're not just trying to cram uh, you know 15 details in a in a four second play. And what can you tell us about your daily routine in terms of prep, making sure you're ready for the broadcast? And we know you have the scorebook right there. Oh, if you could just hold that up to uh, this camera and let us see what's important for you to make sure you put on your scorebook each night. All right. So this is my Bob Carpenter scorebook. Do you guys use Carpenter? Absolutely. I showed uh, mine to him a few years ago I, in Miami. He got. I actually just ordered mine last night. How about timing. I, I know the guy. I mean, so I, I've, got <laughs> yeah. my, I've got a good supply here. So, I mean, like, you know, for this, uh, we've got the standings page here. Uh, we've got the defense here. So on the defense, you know, I, I write, you know, the player for each position, how many errors they're hat they have for the catcher, you know, his throwing stats, as far as the, the, the lineup, I kind of just write basic stuff. I've got, um, batting average homers, RBI steals. Then I'll do, uh, in parentheses next to that, what he did in the last game. And it's, you know, my, my handwriting is gibberish. Only I can read it. But for example, uh, Alberto for the Orioles, two for five, two doubles and RBI. And I kind of have shorthand. So I know that I, so I know what that is. And I, I use four lines. I'll use the bottom line for his career record against the pitcher he's facing and then his line against the team. So he was facing Austin Voth that night. He was two for two with a homer in prior matchups against both. And in the season series, he was five for 10 with a homer and an RBI against the Nationals. Then I write in like a streak. Uh, he snapped a four game, uh, two for 16 streak by going two for five in the last game. Um, the guy below him, Santander, hit safely in six out of eight. So I just kind of write basic notes there. Now, what I, I chart, I don't know how many guys around the big leagues do this, but I chart every pitch. And the reason for that, I mean, in the, in today's game, pitch count is everything, especially for the starting pitcher. So I don't know how closely you can see it. So in the first inning, uh, we'll go like strike ball X in play and he fly to right. Santander was strike, strike, foul, strike. So I, I, I literally chart every pitch. And so then at the end of the inning, both had 10 pitches, nine strikes. And I write the pitch count up in the, the top for every, uh, for every inning. Uh, then the down below, we have the, the pitcher box, uh, just career numbers on both up there, pitching line for the game. You've got uh, your relievers over here, uh, bench over here. So kind of the basic stuff that I fill out on a day-to-day -day basis is just the, the stats on each player that, that go in the box. And then uh, for me to keep score, you know, Bob has it designed to use the entire box but I kind of almost put an imaginary line at the top of the box just to chart the pitches. So I use like three quarters of the box to keep score. And then I do the, the pitches um, up above. And that, that always helps me. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than uh, to me an announcer going, you know, Hey, this is a long at bat or well, he's fouled off a bunch of pitches on three and two. Well, how many? So, I mean, when it gets to three and two, I can count, Hey, you know, he's fouled off four in a row on a three, two count, this will be, and, and I'll use it in the play. Here's the 10th pitch of the at bat. Boom. So I, I am, and that's, there, there have been a handful of times over the years. We had Joey Votto of the Cincinnati Reds draw a three ball walk. Nobody on the nationals bench, not the manager, not the pitching coach, not the catcher. The pitcher knew, but he was a rookie. Matt Grace didn't say anything. He knew it was a three ball walk. And I'm sitting there going, this is a three ball walk. And sure enough, it was a three ball walk. Umpire got it wrong. The scoreboard had it wrong. Nobody on our bench said anything. So every time Matt Grace faced Joey Votto the rest of his career, we always brought up the three ball walk. <laughs> now, all because, occurred, all because we keep our pitch count. And if this occurred at Nationals Park, then you'd have to yell down. I don't think anybody would hear you. You're too I know, high this, it, it was in Cincinnati. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like, I wanted to, to open the window. Guys, it's ball three. What are you doing? So we're talking about prep. How about stories? Because you have the numbers there and, and all the statistical trends. But when you want to dive into a deeper story, maybe it's a human interest aspect on somebody. Is there another place where you'll have structured stories and, and how you want to tell things on the air? Yeah. So I, I have two other things. Um, so I'm here. So this is not as much for stories per se, but uh, Charlie and I both do one of these. It's a day by day. So, for example, this is Jan Gomes, and this is every game 
of the 2020 season for Gomes. So what I use this for, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to see, but on Friday, November, uh, Friday, September 11th, Gomes hit, hit a home run, his third of the year. His next home run was on the last day of the season. So when the ball goes out of the ballpark, I can pull up this, this sheet and go, hey, Gomes' last home run was on September 11th. I don't have to look it up. I've got it. And it allows me also to keep track of, of hitting streaks, um, you know, long hitless streaks, and just kind of um, anything I'd want on any player with the Nationals. Um, you know, we do the same for pitchers. Pull up. Let me pull up Scherzer here. So here's my Scherzer page. And you can see the highlighted yellow in that column there. Those are his 10 strikeout games. So if there's a game where Scherzer strikes out 10, I can look back and say, all right, that's his 98th career double-figure strikeout game. And I'm, I'm when he has eight strikeouts, I'm looking at this. Then when he gets nine, I've got the number. So it's right there. You know, hey, that's the 98th time and the fifth time this year he struck out 10. I've got it here. And I don't have to rely on game notes. Because what I've found is that not many game notes around the major leagues are done for broadcasters. There's not a lot of information in there that's relevant to what I'm going to want to say on the air. A few teams do it, but they're they're putting in, you know, stuff that's that's really not not important to to what I want. And some teams don't do negative notes. You know, not every guy is going to be on a great hitting streak all the time. So I, I kind of do everything myself as far as statistical keeping for the Nationals, and I do the same thing for the other team. When a series starts. I'll get on baseball reference on every player in their lineup and I'll, I'll do like a little, uh, a hitting streak. I'll, I'll see, Hey, this guy's hitting seven in a row or he's two for his last 27. And so I do that for, for both teams as far as preparation so that I have it right there. And that's, that's some of the stuff that I write in the scorebook. Uh, as far as stuff that we do ahead of time, most of my, my prep is, before a series ever starts. So, for example, I do this on an, on a, on an iPad and a pages file. So there's Kyle Finnegan. So Finnegan uh, came up with the Nationals last year. And so I kind of have his, you know, his height, his weight, his age, signed as a free agent, his repertoire, his pitching repertoire, fastball 93 to 97, cutter 88, curveball changeup, you know, his 2019 stats written out there. Uh, sixth round pick by Oakland in 13 out of Texas State. Seven years in Oakland organization, converted to the bullpen in 2016. I do one of those for every player uh, the, on the Nationals and every player on the other team. So it, it takes me several hours to do an opposing team, and I'll do something like that for every player. Um, a funny story about that. I was doing a game several years ago with the Texas Rangers and it was a game where the Rangers starting pitcher kind of got blasted early in the game. He gets out of the inning and he's due to bat in the third inning. So I'm doing the play-by-play -play in the third pitcher spot comes up and all of a sudden there's a pinch hitter in the, in the on-deck circle, not surprising, but it's not a bench player. It's another starting pitcher. So I'm going, okay. All right. So Nick Martinez is the pinch hitter. So I pull up my Nick Bart Martinez bio and I, I had written down that he was a second baseman at Fordham position player hitting experience. So I say Ron Washington is pinch hitting for a starting pitcher, but he doesn't want to use a bench player. It's early in the game. He's putting in Nick Martinez because he's, he's been a position player in his, in his past. Boom. He grounds out whatever the game goes on that night. We had a, a charity event and I, ran into a Nationals fan and he goes, I was listening to your game today and you did something pretty amazing. I said, what's that? He goes, I was listening to the game and I was wondering why Ron Washington was pinch hitting for his starting pitcher with another starter. And you told me, I said, that's one of the best compliments I've ever received. I said, that was four hours of preparation for four seconds of radio that one person noticed and it was totally worth it. Because never... what you can say is, I have no idea why Ron Washington is pinch hitting Nick Martinez here. And it was all from that preparation. The 99.9% the .9 I was never going to use that note. But that day I did. 
you never know the percent of what you're going to actually use. And that's the frustrating part as a broadcaster, right? Because you, you conjure up all this information from so many different places. You don't necessarily know what percentage is going to make air. Uh, I use very little of it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of hours that I spend on this stuff, and I, actually, I do it in the off season for teams that we're not going to play. Um, because the hardest thing is when you're, when you're in the season and under a normal year, when you're traveling, I mean, I do a lot of this on the plane. I don't, I don't, you know, what am I going to do on an airplane? I'll either read or I'll do these player bios, but when you play an interleague team, okay. So we, you know, we're playing the Texas Rangers. We haven't played the Rangers in three years. So now I've got to do three years worth of work on everybody. So I've gotten to the point where I, I've started to do it in the off season that the pandemic actually got me like last year, I was so bored. And plus the schedule was weird. First, the nationals were going to play the American league West. Then there was that report that, well, you're only going to play Florida spring training teams. And there's going to be like two leagues. Florida is going to play Florida. Arizona is going to play Arizona. So I'm like, okay, I got to, I got to get ready for some other teams. Then it was, it turned out to be East versus East. Well, I wasn't expecting to have to play the East. So I had to get ready for a whole new group of teams. So I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm just going to start updating the teams we don't play in the off season. So when we come around and do play them, I only have to do one year. So I've got the, my kids are more grown. I've got some time on my hands. I, uh, you know, I've already knocked out the uh, American League West and American League Central, and and this year the Nationals are playing the American League East. So I'll I'll update those teams during the season when I have time. I don't know if I would be on an airplane, but when I have time, we'll update the American League East in advance of the series. So I, I honestly, I'll do that if we're playing the the Tampa Bay Rays on May the first. I'll start working on them a week or two ahead, and then have it finished. And so then once the series starts, I don't have to do anything new with that. I'm just kind of focused on you know, pregame preparation. Normally that's around the batting cage in the clubhouse, talking to the other announcers. Um, so kind of the bulk of my preparation is done in advance of the series. Final one for me, uh, Dave, what's your favorite venue to call a game in the major leagues? Um, just we think of some of the iconic venues, but for you, when you factor in booth position, uh, maybe even the media meal too. You can throw that in there. What's what's your favorite ballpark? Yeah, I always answer that question, like you say, several different ways. Philadelphia is the best place to work because it's got a great booth for visitors. It's a good sight line and it's got the best press dining and it's got Turkey Hill ice cream. It's a it's a great place to work. Is it my favorite place to work? Well, no. I mean, I, I, love, I love some of the older parks. I mean, I love, we only go to, you know, love going to Fenway love going to Wrigley, but hate working at Wrigley. I mean, literally just to get out of the booth at Wrigley Field to, to use the restroom, it's, it's a gymnastic exercise to get a, uh, to climb over Charlie's chair and up the stairway. And hopefully they're going to fix that eventually, but it's a, it's a hard place to work. And then when you get the wind blowing in, it, it can be a really tough place to work, but it's a great place to do a game because of the history. So uh, a lot of different uh, places I really enjoy as far as view from the booth. San Francisco, you can't beat that. Uh, Pittsburgh's tremendous. And Nationals Park was great until they put up all the buildings in, in my neighborhood around the, the yards because we used to have the great view from the booth of the Capitol Dome. Uh, now it's a little bit blocked. Well, uh, Time we'll marches on. on. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, we'll get you out on this. Uh, just what's your advice? This is a show that's really designed for a lot of uh, younger broadcasters that are either in college or just out of college to try and take their first steps in the industry. Just what's your overall advice to those folks? Well, considering some of the things that are going on in the business now, go run the other way. But uh, no, seriously, uh, to, for me, the biggest thing in my career, every step along the way had to do with networking. Uh, kind of every job when I went from college to Morgantown, from Morgantown to Charlotte, from Charlotte to Boston, I knew somebody in the hiring process who was basically vouching for me, even from, uh, from Boston to Pawtucket. The one job that I got where I didn't know anybody was the Nationals. Uh, fortunate to, for that. But uh, the more people you know, uh, the better chance I think you have to advance in the business. And you never know what person you meet on a certain day is going to have an impact in your career down the line. And when I was doing Syracuse football games, we happened to go to the Fiesta Bowl my senior year, and I met the announcer who would help me get hired in Morgantown. Now, if, we hadn't, if the team hadn't gone to the Fiesta Bowl or if I hadn't made that introduction, I don't know if I would have ended up in Morgantown. So 
certain things, uh, a chance meeting, you just never know uh, when that's, uh, that's going to pay off. So uh, networking to me is an essential part of the business. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time and all the great answers you gave us here on this edition of Broadcaster Hour. Just thank you again and best of luck. And we look forward to listening to the Nationals coming up this summer. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to it. It was a pleasure being on. The hour went by really fast. It did. Thanks, Dave. Yep. All right. Our thanks to Dave Jagler of the Nationals and thanks all of you for watching this edition of Broadcaster Hour.